Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Wild Street. So glad that you've joined us. Uh, I just want to say, as uh, add to Kieran what he said, uh, we're going to be ha having a question and answer time after the talk. A QR code is going to come up now. Uh, it might be worth you just getting your phone out and getting to the website where you can ask questions. And if something comes up during the talk, you can ask it. I don't promise I'll have the answer, but we'll have a crack. Uh, I've mentioned before that I used to be a personal trainer. I promise not all of my stories revolve around that, but uh, one of the things that I strongly felt about being a PT was the pressure to walk worthy, particularly when you're wearing the uniform. Uh, I always used to feel judged about what I ate when I go to certain places or when you're around certain people who know that you're a PT. Uh, but when you're around family, you know, you can kind of feel like you let your guard down and, and eat and do what you want. Uh, I remember one particular night, I, I finished work late, and you know when you just get those cravings for something dirty? I just really wanted KFC, and so on the way home, I got some KFC, and I, I got home, and I was just ready to enjoy a bucket of greasy goodness. But when I got home, there was a guy over, and he was a physical instructor in the army. He was this buff guy, a bit scared, and I remember him looking at me saying, are you eating KFC? Aren't you a personal trainer? I was crushed. I felt totally unworthy of being a personal trainer. I was so embarrassed. Our passage today continues the theme we've been looking at over the second half of Ephesians. And this is the question. What does it look like to walk worthy as a Christian? Is there a religious version of KFC that we shouldn't eat? Well, we've done a review a couple of times, but let me tell you again. In chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians, we saw the amazing hope that God has called us to. Eternal life, one with Jesus, one with each other, raised from the dead. And then chapter 4, Paul turns to look at the question, so what do we do now? In light of everything that God's done for us, how do we live out the Christian life? And his answer starts in chapter 4, verse 1, walk worthy of your calling. And then the rest of the book fills out what it looks like in particular to walk worthy. That's what we've been looking at over the last few weeks. And today, Paul tells us three more things about walking worthily as a Christian. That's where we're going, okay? So that's a good point one. What does it look like to walk worthy as a Christian? Well, first, God wants you to know the shape of the Christian life. Have a look at verse one, chapter five, verse one. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the shape of the Christian life. God lovingly acts, and so we act in love in response. God lovingly acts, and so we act in love in response. See, sandwiched in between this list of things in chapter 4 and 5 that tell us how to walk worthily in specific ways, Sandwich in between that is this amazing reminder and summary of the shape of the Christian life. Paul says, imitate God because you're already his child. And walk in love because Christ has already loved you. If you think being a Christian is about following rules, or if you think the way to be loved by God is to be a good person then you've completely misunderstood God and Christianity. Living a Christian life and obeying God is always a response to God's love, not a way to earn it. 
Did you see that phrase, fragrant offering and sacrifice? It's a bit of a weird one. I've never used those words before in a normal conversation. But it gets to the heart of the shape of the Christian life. It's a phrase that comes from the Old Testament, a phrase that means pleasing to God. And see, back in the old days of the temple, you'd offer sacrifices, and they were said to be a fragrant offering that pleased God. It's like when you have a barbecue full of lamb and beef steaks, and it smells amazing. That's kind of the idea that you get. But what the Bible says about us is that our lives are not pleasing to God. We actually all deeply offend God by living lives that reject Him, that dishonor Him, living like He doesn't exist and like He's not God. We can't please God. His standard is perfection and we are not perfect. We don't deserve to be part of God's family We don't deserve his love. It's an awful situation. But Jesus came to earth to live a life that did please God. The only one who was perfect in every way. And he offered his life as a pleasing sacrifice in our place. And so even though we can't please God, we can be part of his family and experience his incredible love. It's amazing. When you realize that your life isn't pleasing to God, that you can't be good enough to earn his love or be part of his kingdom, that there's no deal you can make with him, that you are in a completely hopeless state. And yet, God sent his son as a pleasing sacrifice to save your life anyway. When you realize that, how natural is it then? And how much does it make sense to live a life of love in response. If you don't follow Jesus, then this is the one thing for you to hear and take away this morning. You can't earn God's love, but you can accept it. You can't earn God's love, but you can accept it. If you want to experience God's incredible love, get in touch with us through the Connect card, email the office, you'll find it on the website. We would love to chat to you more about that. For those who already follow Jesus, we need to keep getting clear on the shape of the Christian life. See, how we live matters, but it's not so we can earn God's love. No, it's always a response. But we can sometimes fall into living like our actions actually do earn or lose some of God's love. We do it in little ways where maybe I sin, and so I feel like I can't come to God for a bit. And then after a few days have passed where I feel like I've done a good job, I haven't sinned as much, well, then I can come back to God. Then I can be back in his good books and pray and read the Bible. Well, we construct this little system of living like God's love comes as a response to my life instead of my life being a response to his love. It's profound that even in a passage like this that has some of the most do this and don't do that bits in the whole Bible, the Bible is still totally committed to saying that What you do is always in response to God's love, not in order to merit it. God wants you to know the shape of the Christian life. God lovingly acts, and so we act in love as a response. In the rest of the passage, we're going to see some specific ways that God wants us to respond in love by walking worthily, and we'll see some more reasons for why we should do it too. So let's have a look at point two. We're to walk worthy in our sexuality. Uh, We'll see two commands, and then we'll look at why he gives them before we do some application. So open your Bibles, have a look at verse 3. 
but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, the first command, Paul names three things we're not to do around the issue of sex. Sexual morality, impurity, and covetousness. Now, what are those things exactly? Well, sexual morality is any form of sex outside of the Bible's definition of God's good design for marriage. Say it again. Any form of sex outside of the Bible's definition of God's good design for marriage. That's sexual morality. Uh, Impurity refers to all kinds of behavior that comes from our lust. And covetousness, well, that kind of seems like it doesn't belong in this list, right? Or it's something totally different. Uh, We associate uh, coveting with money. But what coveting actually means is a desire to have something that's not yours. It's a desire to have something that isn't yours. Uh, Coveting actually comes up in the Ten Commandments. And what do we read that God says not to covet? Well, the first thing is don't covet your neighbor's wife. We're not to covet another person in order to fulfill our sexual desires. Paul's talking about three things to do with the area of sex. But notice, Paul's not saying that sex is bad. God's not against sex. Some people think he is, but he's not at all. In fact, God made sex. Sex is really good. He made it. It's the context that matters. See, when the context is in marriage, it's great. Outside of that context, it's destructive. The context matters. Uh, For me, it makes me think a little bit about batteries. Uh, Let me explain. There's a story that's become uh, one of those legends in my family that we kind of often talk about when we get together. Uh, Someone, I won't say who in my extended family, when they were a kid, uh, they were playing with a battery. And kids and batteries, they don't really mix. And he put a battery so far up his nose that he had to go to hospital and get it surgically removed. Batteries are great when they're in the context of things like TV remotes. How good is not having to get off the couch to watch TV? But outside of that context, in the context of children, batteries are not good. They can be destructive. Sex in the right context is great. But in the wrong context, it's destructive. And God says, have nothing to do with, don't even speak about any kind of sexual immorality. It's really strong language, isn't it? Sometimes we can justify to ourselves thinking, well, we didn't go the whole way, or I didn't look at something that's as bad as it could be, or I haven't acted on anything, I just thought about it a bit. It's not that bad. That's missing the point. God says there's not even to be a hint of sexual immorality or coveting. It's not just our actions, it's our thoughts as well. That's that's the first command. Uh, The second command we see is in verse 4. Have a look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. We get three words about speech. And again, they're all to do with the same realm of thing. They're not three different things. Uh, Paul's not just talking about negative comments or swearing. They're words that have sexual overtones, talking about sex in a vulgar way telling dirty and filthy jokes. Uh, You could see foolish talk as something more general, but I think when it's put between filthiness and crude joking, and the verse before is all talking about sex, I think it paints this picture of a contrast between how the world talks about sex and how Christians should talk about sex with thanksgiving. 
Paul's not saying we shouldn't talk about sex, but he is saying we should talk about it in a totally different way to how the world does. Not in filthy ways for a cheap laugh or to stimulate, but giving thanks to God for his good gift to humankind. Thankfulness is part of the antidote to help us in this area because thankfulness, it it creates and shows a totally different attitude. Sexual immorality resolves around self-centeredness, self-desires, but thankfulness turns us outwards towards God's kindness, recognise that this is a gift from him to be used in his way. Uh, We'll think about application more in a bit, but before we do, let's look at why these commands are given. Uh, We saw one reason back in verse 1 and 2, but now we get two more kinds of reasons. The first kind are judgment reasons, and the second is because of who we are. So let's look at the judgment reasons first. Open verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul says we can be certain that there's future judgment in the form of not inheriting the kingdom for everyone who is these things. It's possible to live in such a way that you discount yourself from the kingdom. This is a serious warning. Who does it apply to? I thought it didn't matter how we live. Well, Paul says it applies to everyone who is these things, which is different to the person who's tempted by these things, is struggling against those things, or is repenting of those things. Paul's talking about the person who stops fighting and gives themselves over to it. The person who doesn't want to give up, who thinks their satisfaction is more important than honouring God. You can't earn God's love through what you do, but if you have no regard for God in what you do, then you haven't understood or accepted God's love. Do you see the tension? We can sometimes minimise that second part. Uh, and thinking about this, I heard a friend say something that was really helpful. He said, he said no one ends up in this place overnight. Uh, no one gives up their faith when they're a Christian one day and then wakes up the next day saying, you know what, I just want to have some casual sex, so I'm just going to leave God behind because I just want to do it. No, it seems that people tend to exit the kingdom in this way through a long series of small but poor decisions that have led them to that point. We need to honour Jesus in the little decisions. Every day pursuing purity and caution in the little things. He said bad decisions, bad little decisions, litter the pathway out of the kingdom. We need to hear that. But it's not only future judgment Paul has in mind. Have a look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Of course, God's wrath comes on the disobedient in the future. But here, Paul uses the present tense. God's wrath comes presently. He doesn't explain it further, but I wonder if he has something like Romans 1 in mind, where part of God's judgment is giving us over to our sins, so we experience all of the darkness and the consequences of it. Maybe. That's the first category of reasons. There's present and future judgment in getting caught up in these things. But there's a second category, 
verse 9 to 14. He says, walk worthy in this way because of who we are. Have a look at verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. If you follow Jesus, you're in the light. In fact, you are light. That's what happened when Christ shone on you, verse 14. If you're light, it makes no sense to walk in darkness. Light is righteousness and holiness, and darkness is sin. Paul says walk in the light because that's who you are. Verse 11 goes on, it says, Not only should we not do the deeds of darkness, but we should expose them. I think that word particularly is talking about the light of Christian example, exposing the world's darkness for what it is. It's not as much calling out non-Christians, though that might be appropriate at times. The world should look at Christians and how we do sexual relationships and say, I want that. Commitment, sacrificial love, one person serving the other for the rest of their lives. I want that. Our light and purity should shine and expose the ugliness of the darkness for what it is. God calls us to walk worthy in our sexuality as a response to his love in light of his judgment and because of who we are in Christ. So how are you going at it? In your actions, your thoughts, your speech? It's worth saying that this isn't just an application for young people or only for one gender or just for single people. I've spoken to some older people this week and they tell me this is an issue for everyone. Satan wants you to be sitting here thinking, man, I know exactly who needs to hear this and I hope they're watching without taking it on for yourself. So how are you going and what can you do? Do you know you've been struggling in this area but no one else knows? The action point for you might be be honest with someone. Sin thrives in the darkness. Be honest with God first and then be honest with someone you trust to bring it into the light. Do you need to more carefully analyse what you watch and cut some things out? There's a TV show, a YouTube channel or social media account that's got some great entertainment on it, sure, but you know it contains more than a hint of sexual immorality and it's not helpful for you. Do you need to set thoughtful boundaries with the person you're dating? Because leaving it to your willpower, that's not going to work. Do you need to pursue better intimacy with your spouse? I know that I'm younger than lots of married people who are watching, but I'm not the expert, but I'm told the best defense against immorality for married people is a healthy sex life with your spouse. It's not easy. When you're younger, you can't imagine how it would ever, ever be hard, but with kids, work, busyness, the stresses of life, it gets hard. It stops being a priority. The Bible's clear that a healthy sex life is really important if you're married. 1 Corinthians 7 says, Have sex regularly, but stop occasionally to pray when you can both agree. Uh, We've got a prayer meeting on Wednesday mornings. You can stop to come to that. The action point for you might be to open a conversation with your spouse about how your sex life is going and have a conversation about how you can serve the other person in this way. There's a bunch of thoughts about living in this area. What is it for you? What's the thing you need to do in light of God's word to you here? 
we're going to quickly look through the last section that tells us some more ways that we can specifically walk worthy. So point three, walk worthily in wisdom. Uh, Open up verse 15. Verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. People of the light need to think carefully about how they walk and walk wisely. That is, Live well in light of reality. What does wise walking look like? Well, Paul says there's three things. Make the best use of the time. Understand the will of the Lord, not being foolish. And be filled with the Spirit, not wine. Let me say something about each of those things. Make the best use of the time. Paul says, because the days are evil. We live in a world that's ending, that's broken, that's filled with evil. And God is bringing a new, perfect world to replace it. Knowing that shapes how you best use your time now. For all of us, it means that every relationship you have is for the purpose of helping that person be part of the new world. That's part of how you best use your time because people are what matter and what last. For some of you, uh, the best use of your time will be going into full-time paid ministry. In light of the evil days and the time we live in, that might be the best use of your time. Have you thought about that? For those in school or studying, making the best time uh, in light of the age we're in will shape about what job you go for, what you study after school, or if you study after school. How will you make the best use of your time? Whatever life stage you're in, how can you make the best use of your time knowing that the days are evil? It totally shapes your priorities. Uh, you're using your time well right now because you've tuned into church. Well done. The second thing is, knowing the will of the Lord will help you live wisely. If you know God's plans and purposes for the world, you can live better. What is God's will? Well, that's what we've been looking at at Ephesians. We've seen Ephesians 1.10. God's will is to unite all things in Christ. And our role is to be united to Him and to each other through faith in His Son, and to walk worthy of that amazing calling. If you want to know God's will, read his word. Then you'll be able to live more wisely. The third thing is, be filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk, that's, that's part of the darkness. But the result of being filled with the Spirit will mean that we speak joyfully the truths of God to each other and to him. I think that's what all of those different activities are about joyfully speaking the truth of God to each other and to him. Use your words well. There's so much packed into this passage, we could talk forever on it. What's one really practical thing that will help you walk worthy of your calling this week? What's one thing? You might want to write it down to help you remember and reflect and grow in that this week. I just want to finish by saying that different people will need to hear this passage differently. 
which is one of the amazing things about Scripture. This passage speaks to people in different situations. Uh, to the person who's living unrepentantly in sin, who's not thinking about fighting sin or living in holiness, for that person, God wants you to hear the warning and wake up. Stop living in darkness. Maybe today has been the wake-up call that you needed. Don't let it go to waste. Talk to someone. Ask God for forgiveness and ask him to help you change. To the person who's feeling crushed by their sin, who's hearing this and is overwhelmed by guilt, who feels like you're just hanging on by a thread, God says you are already one of his children. He's already loved you in the most extreme way in Christ. Forgiveness and grace abound at the foot of the cross. Don't let this sermon drive you inwards to dwell on your guilt and crush you. Let it drive you to your knees before God, knowing that you have never been worthy of God's love, even when you thought you were doing well. But he's poured it out on you anyway and has forgiven you in Christ. Take comfort in that and keep coming back to the cross because that is the shape of the Christian life. Imitate God and walk in love, not in order to earn God's love, but because we've already been loved by him. And so let's walk worthy of this amazing calling. Let me pray. Please join me. Father, help us again and again to be blown away by everything that you've done for us in Christ. That even though our lives are not naturally pleasing to you, that you sent your Son who lived a perfect life, who pleased you perfectly, who offered his life as a sacrifice that we might be part of your family, that we might deeply and in a real way experience your love. Father, help us to know that truth and help us to respond rightly to it, not by walking in darkness, but by walking worthily in the light. Father, show us the ways in our lives that we need to walk worthy. Please grow us in all these things. Father, we pray that we wouldn't just hear your word this morning and then forget about it. We pray we might hear your word and do what it says and grow us into the likeness of your son this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.